The scripture reading for this morning comes from select passages from Daniel chapter 2. Verse 26. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were laying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. This is the word of the Lord. For the next, uh, for the next four weeks, really over the next month, we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel teaches us what it means to live out the gospel. Because it talks about a time when the people of Israel were living in Babylon. And so they were living amongst a foreign people, a foreign culture. And this culture was particularly hostile to a monotheistic, to a biblical God. So when you ask the question, how do you live as a Christian in an unbelieving world that doesn't share your values today, the book of Daniel helps us to answer that question. And it's really important to see how Daniel then lived his life. We're going to go through four points today. Four points. Daniel's calling. Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The meaning of the rock. And our foundation. Daniel's calling. Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The meaning of the rock. And our foundation. First, we're going to look at the calling. The calling of Daniel. Daniel, he's an Israelite. But he was exiled. He was pulled out of Israel, and he lived in Babylon. In fact, he had two names. We see this in the text right in the beginning where we read that his birth name was Daniel, but his Babylonian name was Belteshazzar. Why, why the two names? Why does, why does the author specifically point out that he had two names? We have to see the background of this. You see, Israel as a nation at one point was conquered. 
And uh, the people of Israel were taken captive by Babylon in 586 BC. It was a very, very epic moment in the history of Israel. But 10 years prior, the Babylonians actually invaded Israel. And rather than conquering Israel outright, they took 10,000 of the elite professional class of Israelites and brought them back to their own country in Babylon. 10,000 of the smartest, most talented people in Israel. And, and we're talking about the leaders in the government, the leaders in the military, the leaders in science and the arts and education. This is the cultural and intellectual elite of Israel. They were taken there. Now, why did Babylonians do that? You have to think about this. What's the best way to conquer a nation? This is the ancient times. What's the best way to conquer a nation? And at the same time, simultaneously improve your own country. How do you improve your defenses and your technology and your treasury and your education? The Babylonians, they essentially had two ways of doing this, two ways of dealing with their enemies. The first was they would just rout them completely. They would destroy them through war. They would ravage the country. And they could do this. The Babylonians were powerful enough to do this, but that's a very costly option. It would cost them lots of lives, lots of money, lots of money out of their treasury. There was a far less costly option. And what they did was, it had much greater benefits. They would take the elite class first, the elite professional class, and assimilate them first into their own culture. Because it's a brain drain. On one hand, you're going to weaken your enemies. It would be a brain drain. They would lose their cultural elite, and they would lose the people who really charged with building the wealth of the empire. But on the other hand, they would take this cultural elite and learn from them. Take the best of science that this country had to offer, the best of the education, the best of literature, and they would aggregate them into their own. Daniel was one of those people taken into captivity by the Babylonians during that wave. And what he did was eventually he was so skilled, he was so brilliant that he eventually ascended the heights of the empire all the way past the elite of their own country. Now think about this. Daniel was exiled. He was pulled out of his own country into this country, but he realized, he himself realized he was part of an unfolding plan. He was called. He was called by God in Babylon. And so Daniel trusted God, and as because he trusted God, he remained true to his own values. You see this throughout from chapter 1 in. And so although he lived among the Babylonians, and he was given a Babylonian name. Chapter 1, it mentions that Daniel served among all those wise men. He actually excelled above those wise men, the Babylonian wise men. He had the enchanters and the magicians. And uh, it's kind of like Hogwarts, I suppose. Uh, he was learning the literature of the country, the, the learning of the country, the visions of the country, the dreams of the country. He would be educated in the knowledge and the understanding of the Babylonian empire, and he rose above them. But he was a Christian. He was a believer. And so, this is a great example of someone who rose the ranks of society and he excelled while still remaining true to his faith, remaining true to his calling, remaining true to his values. That's the meaning of the two names. And how is he able to accomplish this? How do we accomplish this? Generally, to accomplish something like this, people tend to either, people end up either over-adapting or under-adapting to society. You over-adapt at the cost of your values, at the cost of your faith, at the cost of your calling. Or we tend to under-adapt at the cost of our social standing, 
at the cost of our social influence, at the cost of our potential, and uh, even our winsomeness. Daniel, he had integrity. He was wise. What does it mean to have integrity? What does it mean to, be, to have integrity? The word integrity comes uh, or is similar to the word integrated. What that means is that every part of Daniel, his mind, his emotions, his will, it was held together as one coordinated unit. He had no hidden motives. It means what's on the inside of Daniel was ex- executed, was expressed on the outside of Daniel through his actions, through his words, through his deeds. There's a story about Steve Jobs, uh, the great founder of uh, Apple, right? Steve Jobs, he, he grew up under his father, who was a cabinet maker. He was a carpenter, a woodworker. And his father would oftentimes build, especially the back of the cabinet that nobody would see. And he would actually, the part that gets attached to the wall. And Steve Jobs would ask his father, why are you spending so much time on the back of the cabinet, this part that no one's going to see? And his father would tell him, well, just because the outside of the cabinet looks good, it shouldn't satisfy the builder because you will know. So what's in the back of the cabinet has to be just as beautifully designed as the exterior of the cabinet. And Steve Jobs, as you know, as a founder of Apple, was really built on, bent on, integrated design, elegant design, back and front. So, you know, back then you opened up a computer and the computer was a mess on the inside, even though on the outside it looked nice and clean. But if you opened up the back of an Apple computer, it's beautiful on the inside as well. It's organized and ordered on the inside as well. Elegant design, integration, elegance in that way. The only thing, this is the only thing that enabled Daniel to serve the Babylonian king. To serve the king well in a foreign country. To serve a king that did not hold to the same values that Daniel held and yet at the same time stay true to his values. In fact, his values on the inside drove the way he dealt with the king and his people on the outside keeping his worship and values intact as a chosen person in, in, in this country. Now, the life of a Christian is a lot like the life of Daniel because the Bible says, throughout the Bible, it says that we're all exiles. The Bible says that Christians have really been separated from their homeland, but they're called to live in a world as God's chosen people. So on one hand, Christians do not overadapt. We remain true to our calling. We remain true to our values. On the other hand, we don't under-adapt. We don't separate from society. On one hand, you connect deeply with society. You integrate with society. You seek the prosperity of the government of society, the policies, the education, the commerce. But on the other hand, you never buy into the values of society. You never buy into the motivations, what drives the people of the society. Now think about this. If you've never struggled with this in your life, if you've never struggled with that tension, If you've never asked yourself in the midst of compromise, right then and there, how does the gospel, how does the cross, how does the resurrection of Christ, how does this apply to my life here, in my context right now, in the midst of compromise? How does it shape me? How do my values shape me right here? It's very possible. If you've never struggled with that, it's very possible you've already over-adapted. You've already over-adapted. If you're just impulsively going, you could be sitting here right now, calm, collected, but impulsively in your life, just going with it. If you're doing that, you've never struggled, then you're running the risk right now of losing yourself by taking up the values of society. Society's idols, 
the idols of wealth and power and approval and success and status. You've abandoned the call. Or maybe you've never experienced the call of Christ. You've abandoned the will of God. But on the other hand, if you've separated yourself from society and the only people you connect with, the closest friends that you've got are only Christians, you've also abandoned the call. You've also abandoned God's will. Why? Daniel, he had two names. He had two names. One represented who he was. That is his identity. On the other hand, the other name represented his calling, where he was, where God had called him to, and he had integrity. He had wisdom. And the wisdom birthed the integrity, and the integrity birthed more wisdom, and he was able to exist. He was able to thrive. He was able to excel in that empire as a called person of God. The two names represented integrity and faithfulness to his call. On one hand, he was called to serve the king. You see this in the beginning of chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream, and he's troubled, and he needed an interpreter. And he he wanted this interpreter to first retell the dream before he interprets the dream. He wanted the wise men to retell the dream, really to ensure that this person really was wise, that this person really had supernatural ability, supernatural power, or the king says, I'm going to cut you to pieces, and Daniel volunteers risks his life. Verses 17 to 30, he risks his own life for the sake of his co-workers, for the sake of his friends who are about to be downsized. He serves them. On the other hand, Daniel relied solely on the Lord for the dream, solely on the Lord for the interpretation. The king says, are you able to do this? Daniel says, verse 27 and 28, he says, no one can do this. There's not a single person that can do this, but God is the revealer. And notice, he doesn't pull his punches. If you over-adapt, you're going to pull your punches. If your boss comes to you and tells you, hey, I have this idea. What do you think about my idea? You're going to pull your punches. You may think the idea is unwise, but you're going to pull your punches. Daniel responds, and his interpretation is filled with a biblical view of a non-believer's problems. And his counsel is harsh. It is incredibly harsh. His counsel is filled with warnings, but it's real. Friends, think about this. When you step into your office, when you step into your classroom, what do you have there? I hope most or all of your friends are non-believers. Because if you're not, <clears throat> if they're not, then, then you've separated and you've abandoned the call of God. You're going to lose yourself that way as well. The city is going to challenge you. The city is going to keep you real. Real to what you believe. Real to, the city is going to keep you real, and it's going to keep you hopeful. It's going to challenge that. It's going to keep you humble. It's going to challenge your integrity. It's going to challenge your values. It's going to challenge what you believe. You need the city. In fact, you need the city more than the city actually needs you. Our faith rests on the death of Christ, and it's so unique, and it's so powerful the death of Christ, so unique, so powerful. And our lives it, it, in faith, it rests on God entering into our broken world. Think about this. Our faith rests on God himself entering a broken world and connecting. He doesn't say, whoa, whoa, whoa I'm too clean for this. He connects with this world. He connects with his people. They didn't even recognize who he was, but he immerses himself into his people, and he gets dirty with his people, and he's healing lepers, and he's healing the blind, and he's healing people who are just outcast completely. He's touching people who the, the religious people will not touch. He sacrifices for them. He sacrifices for us, and he does it 
without sacrificing his values. He holds with integrity. Love the city. Engage the city. If you're studying in the city, you're called here. Love the city. Engage the city. That's the message of Daniel. But you can't over-adapt to the city. And you shouldn't under-adapt to the city. Maintain two names with integrity. Daniel's first name represented his love for the Lord. And it gave him wisdom. And it gave him values. And it gave him courage. And his second name gave him skill. And it gave him commitment, a commitment to excellence and quality in his life. And as a result, he thrived and he flourished and he excelled. And God used both his heart for the Lord and his excellence for his glory. Most of us, we spend time building only that second name. We spend most of our lives building our worldly name. And the name of, that, that represents our love for the Lord, it's just an afterthought. You know what that means? You only have one name. That's what that means. That means you only have one name. Develop a mindset of two names. Develop a mindset of two citizenships. You're part, you're a citizen of this earthly city, Augustine, in the city of God. His seminal piece of literature, really his seminal work, St. Augustine, philosopher, theologian, uh, he says in, this, in the city, in any city, you have two cities. You have an earthly city that's just represented by earthly values and pushing and pushing. And here, there, you have people just upending one another, pursuing their values. But inside this earthly city, you have the city of God. You have an alternate city within the city. You have Christians who believe counterintuitively everything that the world values, Christians counterintuitively value. So if the world values wealth, Christians value generosity. If the world values health and good looks, Christians are humble. Christians sacrifice their bodies. And that's why the church is marked with sacrifice throughout history. During the time of the Great Plague, you have Christians who are you have people who are fleeing the city because the object was to get away from people as much as possible. The, and even Christians were fleeing the city, one section of Christians at least. But there were a group of believers who actually flooded into the city. And even though they had no nursing skills, they nursed people back to health. And in return, you know what happened? There are accounts everywhere, secular accounts everywhere, that it was the Christians who came back into the city and served as nurses and the aides and doctors. And as their people that they were nursing were nursing back to health and recovered, they themselves would catch the plague and die. Heavenly city, the alternate city within the city. Maintain two names. Incidentally, or not incidentally, the book of Daniel is the only book of the Bible written in two languages. It's the only book of the Bible written in two languages. Written partly in Hebrew, but a good portion of the book was written in Aramaic, which was really the English of its time. It was the one language that everybody studied throughout the world at, at the time. And so it was really intended as a message for the church, but a message for the world as well. Maintain two names. Immerse yourself. Engage with the city. I don't mean just go in, hey, I engage with the city. I like the sports teams and I eat at these restaurants. That's not engaging in the city. Love the city. There's much more brokenness in the city than there is uh, Rittenhouse Square, than what's represented in Rittenhouse Square. Love the city. Engage the city. Become a part of the alternate city, an alternate citizen. Now, that's the first point. It's the longest point. Second point is a dream. We've got to get into this dream. In chapter 2, 
Nebuchadnezzar, he's freaking out. The king is freaking out. He's sleepless. He's paranoid. He's threatening people left and right in chapter 2. Why? Because deep inside, even the most powerful man in the world to date, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the most powerful empire in the world to date. But even the most powerful man in the world cannot be free of anxiety as long as he's gripped by worldly desires for power and wealth and security. And how do you know this? It's a nightmare. It's his dream. This dream disturbs the king and he's restless. The text says that Nebuchadnezzar, on, on this dream, on this nightmare, he summons all the wise men and he tells them, I want you to retell the dream. I want you to first tell me what the dream is and then I want you to interpret the dream for me. But they couldn't. And so what do they do? They try to buy time with him. They're trying to get the dream out of him. And he knows. He says, I know what you're trying to do. And eventually they concede. We can't do this. Nobody can do this. And so what does he do? Nebuchadnezzar says, I have nobody wise around me. This is a failure of a project. I'm going to overhaul my educational policies and systems. I want everybody executed. That's how they overhaul things back then, right? Daniel, upon hearing the news, knowing that his own life, remember, he's, a wise, he's one of the wise men, knowing that his own life is in danger, knowing that the life of his best friends are in danger, knowing that his coworkers, all of them are in danger, he urges his friends to pray. And in prayer, he steps in to interpret the dream. What was the nightmare? We see this in verses 31 to 33. Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue. The statue is a reflection of his kingdom. What's a statue? A statue, if you have a statue made in your honor, it represents the pinnacle of your career, the way everybody will view you in history. That's what a statue is. Nebuchadnezzar is a king. He's the most, king of the most powerful empire to date. And so in his dream, he's hit the pinnacle of success. Daniel says, you are the gold head. You are the, at the pinnacle. You are at the top. Your power is the most powerful. Your wealth is the most wealthy. From head to toe, this statue diminished. Why? Because he is the gold head, and every other section of that statue represents a kingdom that's rising up. There is gold, followed by silver, followed by bronze, followed by iron, followed by clay feet of clay. Each layer represents a different kingdom underneath Nebuchadnezzar, and he's at the top. He's the gold head. He says in verse 37, you are the king of kings. You are the king of all these kings. But these nations are on the rise. They're rising up, and you are insecure, and you know it. That's why you can't sleep. Beyond the dream, you have an insecurity that really keeps you restless. Because you know that with all your power and with all your wealth, you are defenseless. That's why you're freaking out. Nebuchadnezzar is freaking out. Daniel says, verse 37, he says, You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given dominion and power and might and glory. He's placed it into your hands. He's placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, wherever they live, he's made you ruler of all. You are the head of gold. In other words, what he's saying is, yes, you are the most powerful. But don't you get it? God has given it to you. 
You believe you're the most powerful person in the world, but do you know why you're insecure? Because this was given to you, and you won't recognize that. You think you need more. You always think you need more. God has given this to you. Here's a question for you. Who gave you your gifts? Who gave you your athletic ability? Who gave you your looks, your figure? Who gave you your intelligence? Who gave you your jobs? Who gave you your friends? And yet we're so irresponsible with our friends. Who gave you your spouse? And yet we're so harsh with our spouses. Who gave you your children? And yet you let your children rule you and run your life. Who gave you your career, your education, your intelligence? And yet we use these things, we exploit these things to build up our own strength and our own might and our own glory. You ever read Malcolm Gladwell, the book Outliers? Gladwell, I'm going to sum it up, really. The second half of the book, I'm just going to sum it up for you. Gladwell basically says, New York Times bestseller, you should really read it, it's a great book. Everything you've ever achieved, even lost, was given to you. Most of everything that you've achieved, think about it, your looks, your intelligence, most of everything that you have that's of any worth that you could use to build a career or get married, It was given to you. You were practically born with it, or you were born into it. Think about all the great ones, Bill Gates, born of a wealthy family, Steve Jobs, right place, right time, all these things were given to you. That's what Gladwell says. But we're never grateful to God, like Nebuchadnezzar. We don't acknowledge God. Oftentimes we run from God, we hide from God, we steal, we commit sacrilege in many ways. Rather, we lift up these things, these earthly things, wealth and power, success, relationships. We lift these, up, th- these things up and we say, these things are a sense of worth in my life. And as a result, to get these things, we trample over other people. Those are the wars. That's why Nebuchadnezzar's at war. Daniel is interpreting the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, but he's also interpreting the dream for us. He's explaining things to us. He's challenging Nebuchadnezzar, but he's also challenging us. Do you see that? He's saying you need to reconsider your view of God. You need to reconsider your place in this world, who you are in this world. Nebuchadnezzar, he's a king, and he's got power, and he's got wealth, and he's got women everywhere. Everybody here who moves into the central part of Philadelphia, why do we do that? Why do we come into the city? It's because most of us, most of us are like Nebuchadnezzar. Most of us have a similar dream. We want to be the gold head. We want to be the one at the top, and so we work and we labor. We want greatness in our lives. But the dream says what? There's a catch in this dream. That's what keeps them awake at night. The catch is what? You have feet of clay. What is clay? Because gold is precious. Gold is strong. Clay is brittle. Clay is fragile. It's either too soft to become anything or when the sun shines on it it becomes too brittle and will shatter easily you ever drop anything made of clay shatters instantly you would never build anything on top of clay but here's this statue all the kingdoms of the world with nebuchadnezzar at the top and so the adage goes the bigger you are the higher you are the greater the fall daniel says nebuchadnezzar this is you and he's speaking to us this is you Gold defines status and power 
and worth and wealth. And Nebuchadnezzar thirsts after power because it gives him a sense of security and it gives a sense of defense and it gives us a sense of greatness. But his nightmare disrupted that dream, that dream of greatness. The nightmare disrupts it because he's saying, you are made of feet of clay. And that's what makes him insecure because he knows deep inside there's this deep-rooted, ever since the Garden of Eden, there has been this deep-rooted sense of insecurity, defenselessness. The world is a dangerous place and we know it and we see it all around us. We see it in our families. We are never safe. As a pastor, I have to ask you this. Daniel tells the king and he says, hey, there are kingdoms that will overturn you and then that kingdom will be overturned and then that kingdom will be overturned and then that kingdom will be overturned until one day something as small as a pebble will come and shatter everything, bring everything down. I'm going to ask you a question. I have to ask this as a pastor. That's a pastoral question. What keeps you up at night? It's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphorical phrase. What's your biggest nightmare? What's that one thing in your life that you say, you know what, if, I have, if this happens to me, my life will be utterly devastated. It would just be awful. My life is going to be over. What's the, what's the one thing that you are most afraid of losing in your life? Some of us have even more than one thing. What is that one thing that you are most afraid of losing? Because you know what you're doing right now? You're protecting that one thing. You are doing everything to build that up to create defense and security. You say, now I'm safe. And now, if it's wealth, if it's having greatness and a name, you're going to build up wealth because if I have a name, you're going to work to becoming that gold head. Daniel is saying, you are built on feet of clay. Everyone has something that they value. Everyone has someone that they value that gives them a sense of worth. If I lose this, I have all, I've lost all sense of worth. And that's why when our relationship's over, we're just absolutely devastated. We wonder who we are. If we lose a group of friends, we're just absolutely devastated. That's why we pour ourselves into our relationships. Because human beings, like God, are relational. God, in existence, is made of three in one. Community. And so we desperately need community. But the thing is, we make community our God. That one idol. Because if we lose our friends, we lose our name. If I lose my reputation, my life is just over. And so we spend our lives protecting that name protecting our reputations, building our reputations. If I can just find that one person. Think about this. If your idol, if your idol is popularity, that one slight from that one right person, that one critique will ruin you. If you build it on wealth, if you build it on wealth, then you're going to check, you know what you're going to be doing. You're going to be checking your 401k status every day. Some of us do it every day. You're going to look at it every day. You're going to look at your bank account every day. You're going to look at the stock market every day. Why? Because you can't control it, and it makes you anxious. It makes you anxious. If you build your life on your looks or your figure, think about it. You're going to do whatever you can to keep from aging. You're going to work out. You're going to diet. You're going to do horrible things to yourself. Horrible things like dieting, right? Uh, you, if, and you're going to need that one person in your life. You're going to need that one person who can say, you are beautiful. That one person that can validate you. Then I have security. Then I have a defense. I have validation. I have shelter. Daniel is saying to you, what he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar, you are on feet of clay and you know it. And if it's not built on the Lord, if it's not built on the God of heaven, it will topple over. It will be shattered. He uses a pebble. How does a dream unravel? 
If you read ahead, verse 34, he says, a gold head, that gold head gets obliterated by what? A pebble, a little stone, unknown to man. And it obliterates the statue so that it just becomes dust. Like chaff, he says, it's just going to get swept away by the wind, forgotten, gone, dissipates, just unknown. What's he saying? Someday, Nebuchadnezzar, a kingdom will overthrow yours, one after another, until eventually God's kingdom will come, like this rock, like this pebble, and it's going to strike all the kingdoms of the world and obliterate all the kingdoms. Ever since the garden, because of our sin, we know that the world is broken. You look out there, you know the world is broken. It's beautiful. No doubt about it. The city is beautiful, but it's broken. And we know it, and we see it. And for most of us, we work hard. Why? Because we think that I can stop the bleeding. At least in my, I can create my own little kingdom, right? I can stop the bleeding. I can stop the corrosion. I can stop the brokenness. That's the dream, the perfect family, the perfect home. If I just have enough money, if I just work hard enough, just for a little while, if I just have just enough power, if I can just look healthy, if I can build around this one particular relationship, this is the gold. This is the gold in our lives. This passage is teaching us, if you build your life on anything other than God, anything other than God, anything other than God and his kingdom, the nightmare is going to ruin you because it's going to fill you with anxiety or it's going to fill you with jealousy because someone has a security you need or it's going to fill you with anger because someone took away the one thing that you thought is going to make you feel worthy and secure. Here's how you know that you are living out your nightmare, okay? Here's how you know you have feet of clay. If you're always anxious, if you're always nervous, if you're always insecure, if you're always working to make friends or make money or make that one partner in your life that's going to validate you and you're just racing and just working and just slavering, you're enslaved. You're not a king, you're enslaved. And you're never going to sleep well. That's the dream. We're going to speed through the rest of this. What's the rock? The meaning of the rock, verse 34, Daniel explains, the rock is cut out but not by human hands and it strikes the statue on the feet, on the feet of clay. What does that mean? One, a couple things. One, a statue, he says, statues generally are the work of men, human craftsmanship, human accomplishment. But this rock, he says, was not a product of human creativity. He says it was not cut by human hands. It's supernatural. The second thing he says about this rock is it's a rock. It's a pebble compared to gold or silver or bronze or iron. Even clay, this rock has no value, but it's this rock that becomes the most powerful thing in the world. It becomes the most valuable thing in the world. It overwhelms all the kingdoms, turns into a mountain, and grows and fills the earth. It's the least valuable thing that God uses to characterize his kingdom. Why? It's the least valuable thing that God uses to characterize his kingdom. Why? And it's because in order to see God and his kingdom, you need to go beyond surfaces. You need to go beyond the externals. To the world, the kingdom of God is poor. To the world, the kingdom of God is meaningless. It's ridiculous. It's foolish. It's broken. It's weak. People look at the church and they say, look at how weak it is. Look at how broken it is. It's no better than the rest of us. They've got half the story right. It's true. 
It's by the sheer grace of God that the kingdom grows. The kingdom of God is never something that the world on the outside would admire. But the third thing we learn about this rock is that it grows. It grows. It grows into a mountain. What's a mountain? A mountain in the ancient times was the highest point that a person can go to access the heavens. He says this rock grows into a mountain and becomes the great access point so that the entire world fills the earth, means the entire world someday will have access to God. Notice that it's not a kingdom that comes, it's not a throne that comes down and crushes the statue. It's something small, overlooked, almost common, basically dull. The kingdom of God, Daniel's saying the kingdom of God is growing. It starts out small, but it's growing. And it's gradual. I'll make it very practical. We often ask, if God is really God, if God really exists, then why is there still suffering in the world? Why is there still oppression in the world? And you know what the answer is? It part, of this, part of the answer is the question. is because the kingdom of God didn't just come and suddenly wipe everything out, all the evil in the world out. That's not how the kingdom of God comes. First, it came when Jesus came. The kingdom of God came when Jesus came, but it comes in weakness, like a pebble. And it doesn't just wipe away all the evil in the world. You have to understand this. But at the second coming, the kingdom of God will come in total power and fill the earth and restore everything. Think about everything or anything that's gone wrong in your life. The kingdom of God will one day come and undo it. It's almost like a curse that will break. And once the spell is broken, every evil, everything that you think in your life is wrong with the world will be fixed, will be undone. Friends, this is an amazing picture because what Daniel is saying is that the kingdom of God is here, but not yet here. It's here and it's growing. It's growing and it's gradual. It's already, it's already here, but it's not yet here. It's real, but one day it will come in full. That's a picture of you. That's you. Already and not yet. Today and future. We have to have a view of both. We have to have the view of today. It's real. That gives you certainty. That gives you assurance. The kingdom is here, and it is alive, and it is in you. On the other hand, there's a not yet. You are not finished. God is not done with you. God is not done with you. If you're down today, you're down on yourself, you're beating yourself up because you failed. Either you failed in a worldly sense, or you failed here uh, in a spiritual sense, and you're broken. Remember the kingdom of God. Are you a part of the kingdom of God? Is the already there in you? Is there certainty in your life? Is that alreadiness there? But at the same time, you can't go look for the perfect church. You can't go, you're never going to find it. You know why? Because it's not yet. You say, oh, this church has so many problems. That church has so many problems. The not yet is not here. And so you have to look at yourself and say, oh, I need to be perfect. And you beat yourself up. But the not yet is not here. Do you have the certainty of the gospel? Because if you have the certainty of the gospel, the not yetness is coming. It's promised. That's our hope. By the way, it's also the reason why we don't look snobbishly at other people. It's also the reason why we don't look snobbishly at other churches or other denominations. They may do things differently. They may look at things differently. They may look differently, but it's not yet. One day, we will all become one.
and become a mountain of God that everyone can access relationally with the Father. That's the promise. That's the meaning of the rock. What's our foundation? How does that rock become our foundation? Verse 44, Daniel says, The God of heaven set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will endure forever. How does it grow? It begins as a rock, unnoticed, unvaluable, the least valuable. It came in a manger. No one saw him coming. He came as an infant, weak, killable, vulnerable. This is how the kingdom is going to grow. Not despite suffering and weakness and death, but through suffering and through weakness and through death. And on the cross, when Jesus Christ is lifted up, statue is lifted up and obliterated, Jesus Christ is lifted up. And what does he say? My God, my God. He's unimpressive. He's rejected by man. No one saw him to be the savior of the world. No one saw that through this weakness on the cross that Jesus Christ would give access to everybody that on that mountain it would begin. Access to the world. Access to God from the world. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? I've been lifted up. I've been raised and I'm being obliterated. The full, total wrath of God is being poured out on me and I'm being smashed to pieces and I'm being obliterated. I'm coming apart. You know what he's saying? If integrity means that your mind and your heart and your will and your body and your soul is integrated around one coordinated unit, on one hand, Jesus is saying, I physically, I'm being disintegrated. I am falling apart. I'm being obliterated. And yet, do you know? Do you know? He was reciting. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he says, I am thirsty, in John chapter 19, when he says, I am thirsty on the cross, when he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, do you know he's reciting the very words of Psalm 22? He's worshiping on the cross. While he's being pulverized, while he's being disintegrated, disintegrated from the Father. My Father has departed from me. He's forgotten me. He's rejected me. He's forsaken me. While he's being obliterated, do you know his mind, his heart, his soul, his emotions, even the sacrifice of his body, integrated, totally integrated in worship. Why? For you, for me. Jesus lost power so that you could have power. Jesus lost the kingdom so that you could have the kingdom. Jesus sacrificed his wealth and his status and his power so that you could have wealth and status and power. The richness of the kingdom, you can have it. The richness of being known by God, you can have it. Jesus wore a crown of thorns. Why? So you can receive the crown of victory, the crown of mercy. Why? Jesus lost access so that you can have eternal access to the kingdom. And though he was valuable from head to toe, he became valueless on the cross for you. And he was swept away like chaff 
by the wrath of God so that we could be swept away by his love. Friends, this is not just something that you say. This is not just something that you say to yourself. It's why 1 Peter, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter who recognized what it meant to betray Jesus and yet be known by Jesus and reinstated and forgiven because of his compassion and his grace. Here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Jesus Christ is the chosen and precious cornerstone and one who trusts in him will never be put to shame now to you who believe this stone rejected by men becomes precious to you precious to you we're swept away by the love of god plunge yourself into the grace of god jesus christ the absurdity of the cross the meaninglessness of his death becomes beautiful to you, more precious than gold. Why? Because there is your love. Every time you look at the cross, every time you look at the cross, there is the validation from that one person that you've been seeking all your life. There's the love that you've been seeking all your life. There's the wealth. Jesus Christ, more precious than gold. There's the wealth that you need. There's the power that you need. It becomes a new foundation. So new that Jesus Christ, when talking to Nicodemus, he said, it's the new birth. So new, it's like you're being born again. It's the new life. The cornerstone is what you need to form the foundation of a building. Everything is built then in reference to the cornerstone in ancient times. The foundation of all the walls that kept the building together was built on top of, with reference to that cornerstone. Everything that's built is built around that cornerstone. The author of Peter, 1 Peter, says, Jesus Christ is your cornerstone. Build on him. You are not building on feet of clay. He was already smashed to pieces so that you will be building on a kingdom that will last forever. Jesus Christ had two names. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is God and man. The real king became flesh. The real king became a baby. He is the true beauty. He is the ultimate value, greater than gold, top to bottom, the only one that we should bow to, the only one that we should worship. And yet, he had broken his body, rejected by man and God, to become the cornerstone for our kingdom, the kingdom to come. That's the cure of the deep insecurity of our lives. You want to sleep well? Build on that. Rest in that. That's what the Sabbath is about. Resting in that. Reminding yourself. You know what community is? Reminding yourself. Everybody is called to community to remind each other of that. Look to the cross. Respond to the grace of God in Christ. I guarantee you, if you're living an insecure life, it's because you don't have good community around you built on the foundation of Christ or you're not built on the foundation of Christ. Plug into a community. Plug into the community. Don't just do things. Don't just say things. Don't just say things to cover over because you're still hiding. You're still hiding then. You're still building on feet of clay. Plug in to the gospel. Plunge yourself into the grace of God. You say, I am utterly weak and broken, and yet through that brokenness, God will build. Do you believe that? See him lifted up for you. If God could take the ultimate worth and smash it to pieces and through that brokenness bring redemption for the whole world, would he not do that through you? Can he not redeem you through your brokenness? Don't ever discount your brokenness. Don't ever discount your failures. Don't ever look at yourself and say, oh, I'm so, I'm so broken. God must be so far from me. Friends, 
It's through that brokenness that God heals and redeems. Plunge into the already, the certainty of the rock, and into the not yet of the rock. And then you will be able to engage the world with integrity. Do you trust it? Rest on it. Let's pray.